Section 6 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. This selection read by Patty Brugman. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 6. Being now again totally unoccupied, he was invited by Mr. Hector to pass some time with him in Birmingham as his guest, at the house of Mr. Warren, with whom Mr. Hector lodged and boarded. Mr. Warren Mr. Warren was the first established bookseller in Birmingham, and was very attentive to Johnson, who he soon found could be of much service to him in his trade, by his knowledge of literature and he even obtained the assistance of his pen in furnishing some numbers of a periodical essay, printed in the newspaper, of which Warren was proprietor. After very diligent inquiry, I have not been able to recover those early specimens of that particular mode of writing by which Johnson afterwards so greatly distinguished himself. He continued to live as Mr. Hector's guest for about six months, and then hired lodgings in another part of the town, finding himself as well situated at Birmingham as he supposed he could be anywhere. Well, he had no settled plans of life, and a very scanty means of subsistence. He made some valuable acquaintances there, amongst whom were Mr. Porter, a mercer, whose widow he afterwards married, and Mr. Taylor, who by his ingenuity in mechanical inventions and his success in trade, acquired an immense fortune but the comfort of being near Mr. Hector, his old schoolfellow and intimate friend, was Johnson's chief inducement to continue here. In what manner he employed his pen at this period, or whether he derived from it any pecuniary advantage, I have not been able to ascertain. He probably got a little money from Mr. Warren, and we are certain that he executed here one piece of literary labor, of which Mr. Hector has favored me with a minute account. Having mentioned that he had read at Pembroke College a voyage to Abyssinia by Lobo, a part Portuguese Jesuit, and that he thought an abridgment and translation of it from the French into English might be a useful, profitable publication, Mr. Warren and Mr. Hector joined in urging him to undertake it. He accordingly agreed, and the book not being to be found in Birmingham, he borrowed it of Pembroke College a part of the work being very soon done. One Osborne, who was Mr. Warren's printer, was set to work with what was ready, and Johnson engaged to supply the press with copy as it should be wanted. But his constitutional indolence soon prevailed, and the work was at a stand. Mr. Hector, who knew that a motive of humanity would be the most prevailing argument with his friend, went to Johnson, and represented to him that the printer could have no other employment until this undertaking was finished, and that the poor man and his family were suffering. Johnson, upon this, exerted the powers of his mind, though his body was relaxed. He lay in bed with the book, which was a quarto before him, and dictated while Hector wrote. Mr. Hector carried the sheets to the press, and corrected almost all the proof-sheets, very few of which were ever seen by Johnson. In this manner, with the aid of Mr. Hector's active friendship, the book was completed 
and was published in 1735 with London upon the title page, though it was in reality printed at Birmingham, a device too common with provincial publishers. For this work he had from Mr. Warren only the sum of five guineas. This being the first work of prose for Johnson, it is a curious object of inquiry how much may be traced in it of that style which marks his subsequent writings with such peculiar excellence, with so happy a union of force, vivacity, and persipacity, I have perused the book with this view, and have found that here, as I believe in every other translation, there is in the work itself no vestige of the translator's own style, for the language of translation being adapted to the thoughts of another person insensibly follows their cast, and, as it were, runs into a mould that is ready prepared. Thus, for instance, taking the first sentence that occurs at the opening of the book, page 4. Quote, I lived here above a year and completed my studies in divinity, in which time some letters were received from the fathers of Ethiopia, which an account to that sultan Sained, emperor of Apicinia, was converted to the church of Rome that many of his subjects had followed his example, and that there was a great want of missionaries to improve these prosperous beginnings. Everybody was desirous of seconding the zeal of our fathers, and of sending them the assistance they requested, to which we were the more encouraged, because the emperor's letter informed our provincial that we might easily enter his dominions by the way of Dancala. But unhappily the secretary wrote Galia for Dancala, which cost two of our fathers their lives. Unquote. Everyone acquainted with Johnson's manner will be sensitive that there is nothing of it here, but that this sentence might have been composed by any other man. But in the preface the Johnsonian style begins to appear, and though use had not yet taught his wing a permanent and equable flight, there are parts of it which exhibit his best manner in full vigour. I had once the pleasure of examining it with Mr. Edmund Burke, who confirmed me in this opinion, by his superior critical sagacity, and was, I remember, much delighted with the following specimen. Quote, the Portuguese traveller, contrary to the general vein of his countrymen, has amused his reader with no romantic absurdity or credible fictions. Whatever he relates, whether true or not, is at least probable. And he who tells nothing exceeding the bounds of probability has a right to demand that they should believe him who cannot contradict him. He appears by his modest and unaffected narration to have described things as he saw them, to have copied nature from the life, and to have consulted his senses, not his imagination. He meets with no basilisks that destroyed with their eyes, his crocodiles devour their prey without tears, and his cataracts fall from the rocks without deafening the neighboring inhabitants. The reader will find here no regions cursed with irremedial barrenness, or blessed with spontaneous fecundity, no perpetual gloom or unceasing sunshine, nor are the nations here described either devoid of all sense of humanity, or consummate in all private or social virtues. Here are no Hottentots without religions, polity, or articulate language, no Chinese perfectly polite and completely skilled in all sciences. He will discover 
what will always be discovered by a diligent and impartial inquirer, that wherever human nature is to be found, there is a mixture of vice and virtue, a contest of passion and reason, and that the Creator doth not appear partial in his distributions, but has balanced, in most countries, their particular inconveniences by particular favors. Unquote. Here we have an early example of that brilliant and energetic expression which, upon innumerable occasions in his subsequent life, justly impressed the world with the highest admiration. Nor can any one conversant with the writings of Johnson fail to discern his hand in this passage of that dedication to John Warren E.S.Q. of Pembrokeshire, though it is ascribed to Warren, the bookseller. Quote, a generous and elevated mind is distinguished by nothing more certainly than an eminent degree of curiosity, nor is it that curiosity ever more agreeably or usefully employed than in examining the laws and customs of foreign nations. I hope, therefore, the present, I now assume, to make, will not be thought improper, which, however, it is not my business as a dedicator to commend, nor as a bookseller to depreciate. Unquote. It is reasonable to suppose that his having been thus accidentally led to a particular study of the history and manners of Abyssinia was the remote occasion of his writing many years afterwards, his admirable philosophical tale, the principal scene of which is laid in that country. Johnson returned to Litchfield early in 1734, and in August that year he made an attempt to procure some little subsistence by his pen for he published proposals for printing by subscription the Latin poems of Politian. Quote, Angeli Politani, Poemta Latina, Quibus Notus, Cum Historia Latina Posesos, A Petrarch Avo Ad Politania, Tempora Deducta et Vita Politani, Fusis Quam Antihac, Errata Adit Sam Johnson. Unquote. Note the book was to contain more than thirty sheets, the price to be two shillings and sixpence at the time of subscribing, and two shillings and sixpence at the delivery of the perfect book Inquiries. End of note. It appears that his brother Nathaniel had taken up his father's trade, for it is mentionable that Subscriptions are taken in by the editor of N. Johnson, bookseller of Litchfield. Notwithstanding the merit of Johnson and the cheap price at which this book was offered, there were not subscribers enough to ensure sufficient sale, so the work never appeared, and probably never was executed. We find him again this year at Birmingham, and there is preserved the following letter from him to Mr. Edward Cave, the original compiler and editor of the Gentleman's Magazine. To Mr. Cave, November 15, 1734. Sir, as you appear no less sensible than your readers to the defects of your poetical article, you will not be displeased if in order to the improvement of it I communicate to you the sentiments of a person who will undertake, on reasonable terms, sometimes to fill a column. His opinion is that the public would not give you a bad reception if, beside the current wit of the month, which a critical examination would generally reduce to a narrow compass, 
you admitted not only poems, inscriptions, etc., never printed before, which he will sometimes supply with you, but likewise short literary dissertations in Latin or English, critical remarks on authors ancient or modern, forgotten poems that deserve revival, or loose pieces like flowers worth preserving. By this method, your literary article, for so it be called, will, he thinks, be better recommended to the public than by low jests, awkward buffoonery, or the dull serilities of either party. If such a correspondence will be agreeable to you, be pleased to inform me in two posts what the conditions are on which you shall expect it. Your late offer gives me no reason to distrust your generosity. If you engage in any literary projects besides this paper, I have other designs to impart, if it could be secure from having others reap the advantage of what I should hint. Your letter, by being directed to S. Smith, to be left at the castle in Birmingham, Warwickshire, will reach your humble servant. End quote. Mr. Cave has put a note on this letter, answered December 2nd, but whether anything was done in consequence of it we are not informed. Johnson had, from his early youth, been sensible to the influence of the female charms. While at the Stourbridge School, he was much enamored of Olivia Lloyd, a young Quaker to whom he wrote a copy of verses which I have not been able to recover. But with what facility and elegance he could warm all the amorous lay will lay from the following lines which he wrote for his friend Mr. Edmund Hector. Verses to a lady on receiving from her a sprig of myrtle. Quote, what hopes, what terrors does this gift create? ambiguous emblem of uncertain fate, the myrtle, ensign of supreme command, consigned by Venus to Melissa's hand, not less capricious than a reigning fair, now grants and now rejects a lover's prayer. In myrtle shades oft sings the happy swain, in myrtle shades despairing ghosts complain. The myrtle crowns the happy lover's heads, the unhappy lover's grave the myrtle spreads. O oh, then the meaning of thy gift impart, and ease the throbbings of an anxious heart. Soon must this bow, as you shall fix his doom, adorn philanderer's head, or grace his tomb. Unquote. Note. Mrs. Pozzi gives the following account of this little composition from Dr. Johnson's own relation to her, on her inquiring whether it was rightly attributed to him. Quote, I think it is now just forty years ago that a young fellow had a sprig of myrtle given to him by a girl he courted, and asked me to write him some verses that he might present her in return. I promised, but forgot, and when he called for his lines at the time, agreed on, Sit a moment, says I, dear Mund, See Poet, May 7, 1773, for Johnson's way of contracting the names of his friends, and I'll fetch them thee. So stepped aside for five minutes and wrote the nonsense you now keep such a stir about. Unquote. Annick, page 34. In my first edition I was induced to doubt the authenticity of this account, by the following circumstantial statement in a letter to me from Miss Seward of Litchfield. 
Quote, I know those verses were addressed to Lucy Porter when he was enamored of her in his boyish days two and three years before he had seen her mother, his future wife. He wrote them at my grandfather's and gave them to Lucy in the presence of my mother, to whom he showed them on the instant. She used to repeat them to me when I asked her for the verses Dr. Johnson gave her on a sprig of myrtle, which he had stolen or begged from her bosom. We all know honest Lucy Porter to have been incapable of the mean vanity of applying to herself a compliment not intended for her. Unquote. Such was this lady's statement, which I make no doubt she supposed to be correct, but it shows how dangerous it is to trust too implicitly to traditional testimony and ingenious inference. For Mr. Hector was lately assured me that the person for whom Johnson wrote those verses which have been erroneously ascribed to Mr. Hammond. I am obliged in so many instances to notice Mrs. Piozzi's incorrectness of relation that I gladly seize this opportunity of acknowledging that however often she is not always inaccurate. The author having been drawn into a controversy with Miss Anna Seward in consequence of the preceding statement, which may be found in the Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 53 and 54, received the following letter from Mr. Edmund Hector on the subject. Dear Sir, I am sorry to see you are engaged in altercation with a lady who seems unwilling to be convinced of her errors. Surely it would be more ingenuous to acknowledge than to persevere. Lately, in looking over some papers I meant to burn, I found the original manuscript of The Myrtle, and the date on it, 1731, which I have enclosed. The true history, which I could swear to, is as follows. Mr. Morgan Graves, the elder brother of a worthy clergyman near Bath, with whom I was acquainted, waited upon a lady in this neighborhood, who at parting presented him the branch. He showed it me, and wished much to return the compliment in verse. I applied to Johnson, who was with me, and in about half an hour dictated the verses which I sent to my friend. I most solemnly declare at that time Johnson was an entire stranger to the Porter family, and it was almost two years after that I introduced him to the acquaintances of Porter, whom I bought my clothes of. If you intend to convince this obstinate woman to the exhibit of the public the truth of your narrative, you are at liberty to make what use you please of this statement. I hope you will pardon me for taking up so much of your time, wishing you multos e policianos. I shall subscribe myself, your obliged humble servant, E. Hector, Birmingham, January ninth, seventeen ninety four. End of note. His juvenile attachments to the fair sex were, however, very transient, and it is certain that he formed no criminal connection whatsoever. Mr. Hector, who lived with him in his younger days in the utmost intimacy and social freedom, has assured me that even at that ardent season his conduct was strictly virtuous in that respect and that though he loved to exhilarate himself with wine, he never knew him intoxicated but once. End of Section 6 Of the Life of Samuel Johnson Volume 1 Read by Patty Brugman